Hi, Kristen. How's it going? Good, Rebecca. It's going good over here. How are you? I am pretty excited because my best friend in the world had a baby last oh. night. Oh, oh, oh my gosh. So this morning is a historical morning for you. It's a historical morning. I'm very excited. Everybody's healthy and happy and alive. Aww. And this is during COVID time, so it's like extra scary to be Aww. at the hospital. But it worked out. So I thought I would bring that up because it was apropos of something you told me earlier this week that really blew my mind and terrified me yeah. in a visual way. <laughs> so your best friend in the world just had a baby, something mm-hmm. that I am far from experiencing but is always on my mind as something that will eventually happen. Eventually, I will hold the child, the children of my friends. The which, child? <laughs> the children of my friends. I'll, I'll hold them. I'll see them. They'll be the offspring of my best friend who I've known forever, and it'll be (laughs) surreal. You will experience it soon. Being at the hospital and going through childbirth is something that I've been thinking about more and more because a good friend of mine and my cousins are both training to be midwives. So they talk to me about midwifery. I've just been learning about it in class and how the U.S. is just in this position where Death during pregnancy. Yeah, why? Yeah, it's anomalously. Yes. It's ridiculous. We have the most. We have highest mortality rate due to complications in pregnancy of any developed nation. And the mortality rate is four times as high among black women as it is white women. Yes. That's something I literally learned on Tuesday. Every single day, there's just like some paradigm shifting information that finds its way to me. And I'm just supposed to comprehend it. And it's not comprehensible. That is a perfect example. That's actually a Chicago finding. And it really? really definitely was paradigm shifting. It's also very recent that we have statistical power to be able uh-huh. to realize how much worse, how much significantly worse by orders of magnitude it is for women of color. Right. And then to isolate that as being due to just racism, basically like the extra stress that they receive or have to bear in order to get basic things done and to receive basic care, basic Mm health care from their providers. Mm Because you do have to, I mean, it kind of takes a village to give birth to a child in America. If you're Mm going to go through the hospital system, you're going to have to work with a lot of people and hope that they have your best interest in mind and that they're really considering everything that might be going on. In a lot of cases, it's a surgery. Mm -hmm. In other cases, it's less complicated and it's really important that you have people like your cousins doing these Mm -hmm. awesome advocating for the mother right roles there's so much to know it's crazy like birth care in america or birth care what is that birth (laughs) yeah pregnancy and birth this is the way it is in my head and of course once you become pregnant i think now there's a lot more initiatives teach people different things about what it means to go to the hospital and give birth. But in my head, it's like, okay, you are ready to go to the hospital because you're about to have this baby. And the doctor who is going to deliver your baby is just meeting you. And so you're telling them stuff, but they don't know about the last nine months of your life. They do a lot of births in a day or something, but the midwifery and doula practices are more holistic, I guess, and comprehensive. Comprehensive is a good word. Yeah. What's the whole situation here specifically? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not just what is the average person, but what is your situation? And I think that probably makes a huge difference. Treating the patient personally and making them feel like they're getting good treatment, it can give you all the placebo effect. Right. 
Mm-hmm. People feel like they're being treated well, they tend to recover. Mm-hmm. If they don't feel like they're treated well, there is like a small effect. People will not recover because they're unhappy with the way that they felt in uh, your waiting room or whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's so interesting. That's like sociological medicine almost. I imagine too, it's a, a basic stress hormone levels. Mm-hmm. Like That's whatever, true. if we can get those lowered and if that just means chatting with somebody that makes you feel like mm-hmm. you're being heard. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know. Right. <laughs> Fair speculation, uh, though. Because... Why am I even? Why am I even talking still? Because we had a specific thing in mind. Tell our audience what you told me. Well, guess what? There didn't used to be <laughs> anesthesia or the ability to do C-sections in the 16 and 1700s. Were there even midwives in the old days? There probably were. Right. There probably was a lot of mud, a lot of not great sewage, a lot of disease Mm -hmm. that was Mm -hmm. present, a lot of not hand washing because this is pre-germ theory of disease. (laughs) So just to paint a picture, if you were swept back in time to the beautiful 1600s where it smells like garbage. It is of garbage. (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of fabrics that just are about to get soaked in blood probably no matter Mm -hmm. what, even if things go great. Mm Mm-hmm. The intensity is pulled up and we don't have a lot. You know, what can we really do to help a woman give birth? What happens if birth complications arise? And a natural birth. What if that yeah. doesn't work out? <laughs> it, yeah, seriously. Do you have a guess what happens if... I mean, you might know. What happens if birth complications arise? There is a doctor there. There might be some sort of nurse midwife role. But say this woman is in so much pain, she's trying to deliver her baby. It is likely that she may die. The baby is either ill-positioned, which they're not sure about, or maybe just so big that a natural birth is impossible. Does the doctor just stand in the corner nervous and go, you got this? No. What he does is take a little knife and start cutting parts of the pubic bone, shaving it essentially, making it smaller. No anesthesia. Excruciating for the woman. He's cutting away, shaving away the pubic bone with essentially a kitchen knife in hopes of widening the birth canal. And that is what happens when complications arose in the 1600s during childbirth. A little knife. Okay. What? Okay. (laughs) Uh, What is is a pubic bone? The pubic bone. Pubic symphys is the pubic joint. And the word joint here, when you think of joint, you think of some sort of mobility, but really it does just mean a place where two bones are joined by cartilage. So okay. the pubic symphys, if you can imagine between the hips and the pubic bones, there's a lot of places where bone meets cartilage. So that is just the easiest way to create some separation, cut away bone. No, I'm just wondering what bone it is. Oh, it's like at the base of your... It's like at the base of where you're connected. The actual procedure of shaving away the pubic bone in order to widen the birth canal during a birth complication is called symphysiotomy. So symphy, P-H-Y, and then seotomy. Can I take a stab at describing what I see? Yeah. If you imagine a butterfly Uh and the center of the butterfly is where your left and your right bottom bones connect Mm -hmm. and there's... The thing in the middle, that like spot where they connect is this symphysis. Pubic symphysis. The pubic symphysis. Mm-hmm. And so you would just, it's its not a very big connection. It's like, you know, the base of my thumbs together or something. Mm-hmm. So to sever that just seems like a really bad idea. And so what you're describing is still a vaginal birth. It's just uh-huh. 
We got to hack in here to make this happen. Mm -hmm. My other guess is that this development in surgery is going to increase infant birth, infant life, Mm -hmm. uh, and decrease female, like mother. It's going to have a good effect on babies and a bad effect on mothers. That's my guess. You're exactly right. The guy who advocated for it and developed it, he just was like, "Um, this is a technique that or a process that prioritizes the child that was just the philosophy behind it at least one of them is living because previously if you did nothing if you did no intervention uh-huh. both would die uh-huh. and it was extremely painful to try and force it Ugh. or like impossible probably yes at the time it must have seemed like an amazing intervention to realize that you could actually cut this little bit but whoo yeah oh um, it's so it's so upsetting to even imagine so I'm just going to reiterate here, symphysiotomy is a process of removing some bone parts and cartilage of the pubic symphysis to create more room for the easy passage of the baby through the birth canal. And it was developed by a French surgeon, and he was the surgeon to the king. Do you remember last episode how we were talking <laughs> about like royal experts being like expert to the king, botanist to the king, you know, Lamarck was absolutely royal botanist. So it's another royal surgeon, surgeon to the king, and he is coming up with this. He probably got that job by just writing a book at some point about something he observed. Mm-hmm. And, and then they were just like done. Like you said, this was an innovation for the time. Being like, Ugh. wow. I Googled, what did I Google? C-section mm-hmm. surgery. C-section surgical tools mm-hmm. before this episode. And if you do that image search, it's just a bunch of scalp. Like, or, sorry, oh. it's not scalpels. It's scissors. <gasps> it's mm. a bunch of cutting instruments. Mm. So I'm curious to know what the next, I don't know. It was just like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still so like rough. Yeah, it is still so rough. And there was a little between cesarean sections and symphysiotomy, which is now, as we know, it's outdated. But when you talk about C-sections just using knives, it's like they're really just going in and from a different perspective with crude technology. But hey, okay, so symphysiotomy. Some surgeries are just surgery, you know, it's yeah. just a cut in and, and get out. But yeah. yeah, some surgeries are much more complicated than that. Of course. But C-sections are fairly straightforward now. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like best case scenario if you have to have a surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds much nicer than cutting into, you know, where your bones connect and cartilage and like really heavy duty tissue there that you, Mm -hmm. it's not ideal to have that stuff disturbed. It's really probably Mm -hmm. incredibly hard to heal from it too. Mm -hmm. In the 1600s, if you're a woman and you're probably, they're like, get back to work. (laughs) Into the field. Symphysiotomy, it was also, it was long for the doctors, and it was painful for the women, so there was eventually, like a hundred years later, talking about 1780, there was a push to kind of try and relinquish some of those shortcomings of symphysiotomy, and there were two Scottish doctors, James Jeffrey and John Aitken, that decided they were over it. They were over the symphysiotomy. They were ready to move on to anesthetics and cesarean sections, epidurals, modern medicine. But no. no. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> they, were, they were ready, but no. They developed a knife-sized chainsaw, and they are credited with inventing the first chainsaw to supplement symphysiotomy 
and make... Oh, no. Yeah, make birth intervention cleaner, less painful, quicker for doctors. We're talking about a knife with a crank on it that moves a chain. Oh, no. I have a picture. I can share my screen and show you. Please do. It's not going to be good. It's the first chainsaw, okay? Yeah, that's what... So the thing that Kristen told me earlier this week that sparked this whole episode is that the chainsaw was invented to help women give birth. And I was so disturbed by this knowledge. I didn't realize it was even worse because it's not... It's not a C-section. No. It is not so to much cut worse. the belly. It is not to cut the belly. It is it's for this symphysiotomy. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're like, we need kind of just a better tool to do it. One that is not so manual and takes so long and so minute. So they developed essentially a kitchen knife sized. <sighs> the hand crank. Yeah. It's a hand crank. My parents used to have an egg beater, mm-hmm. a hand, not an egg beater, but like a, what do you call that? Hand um, whisk. Yeah. Manual whisk, whisk, I guess. Yeah. Or a beater, like a um, kitchen mixer, a hand mm-hmm. mixer is what it's called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't even know if they make that type of hand mi- mixer anymore. I'm looking at these surgical chainsaws. Mm-hmm. The other thing, it's like you said, it's the shape of a knife, like mm-hmm. the blade. If you get a profile on it, it looks like a knife from afar, like a normal sharp like a steak knife kind of yeah it's a kitchen sized knife exactly so it's not terribly innovative i mean they weren't real i don't know i guess just before they were just using kitchen knives yeah it's not terribly innovative rebecca it is the first chainsaw (laughs) but it is not terribly innovative it's not motorized yet you know it's a knife with a chain and it's a hand crank and it became the gold standard for removing pelvic bone in order to widen the birth canal during birth complications okay we have a new gold standard and it's a tiny little knife sized chainsaw it's a murder <laughs> i mean it's like <laughs> yeah it's for bone cutting it's not cool holy moly To plug again, the Museum of Surgical Science in Chicago in absolutely between Lakeview and Gold Coast. I think they have one, and I think I've seen it. I have seen it. Is this where you learned about this? No, my friend just was spitting facts at me last week, and I was like, are you serious? We are talking birth complications in America. Everybody does have to look it up. Oh, no, you're taking a class where you covered the birth complications. Is that right? That's true. And It's so disturbing. Yeah, it is disturbing. People have just been screwing up for people of color forever. Yeah, it never just stopped. Like, and it never stopped. I saw a tweet, and this is just funny to bring t- a tweet into this, but I did see a tweet. The tweet was, all the racist girls I knew in high school became nursing majors, and that's the problem here. And that was like a month ago someone said that. Burn. Burn. I 100% feel that. Burn. I 100% feel that. And med school used to be way different, and everything used to be way different, but it's still entrenched in whiteness and like just superiority that's totally true it is entrenched in whiteness it 100 percent is also the u chicago so the vaccination i'm fortunate enough to have been Mm -hmm. received my first vaccine and i get my second half um monday which is really exciting because i'm a biological researcher i hope that it doesn't make you bad but if it does it'll be fine i feel good i mean i had no i'm not i'm not i don't normally have Mm. reactions i've never had a reaction to a vaccine before so for Mm. me it was totally normal 
But the thing that is of note is that the reason mm-hmm. I've had access to it so quickly is that we have a lot. There are two campus hospitals, and there's a very large percentage of the staff that are refusing the vaccine. Yeah, you told me this. It's so, like, that is just not a great statistic. I don't know what it is exactly, but it's stunning and sad. So Rebecca works at the University of Chicago as a researcher, and that university is got a bunch of really good hospitals um, on campus and, I guess, off campus. Um, I work at Northwestern as a researcher, and, of course, Northwestern recently bought Centegra, and they just have, like, one of the biggest hospital networks in the Midwest. Okay, so that aside, one of my best friends, his mother, is a, basically, an administrator. She's been working at Northwestern as a professional for 20 years, right? And so Rebecca told me a lot of nurses at UChicago refuse the vaccine, and I go to ask my best friend, is this the case at Northwestern? And he was like, no. My mom got the vaccine, but not because people were refusing it. She just got it because, like, she is a priority there. But to my knowledge, he's like, my mom hasn't mentioned anything about, like, that being of note or, like, an issue or a topic yeah. of discussion at Northwestern, which is interesting because it's essentially the same game. And, like, both two big mm-hmm. hospital networks in Illinois, similar demographics, I guess. Northwestern is a little more suburban. I don't really know if that's super true. but That that's... seems like it would even skew more that way. Yeah. But... That makes me happy. Right. And me too. Because I, I don't know why there would be refusal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no evidence-based reason to refuse the vaccine. And also, I just heard that from a student. Sure. It might be a, a rumor, I guess. But, sure. but I, I mean, believe that was part of the problem with the rollout. Mm-hmm. That makes me really happy. And I would hope that a exactly. research hospital, they're vaccinating everybody as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Someone else that I talked to works at a suburban hospital system and is an anesthesiologist. And he said that... All of the surgeons, but I don't know. It's just a guy. He said all the surgeons yeah. were deniers and a lot of their nursing what? staff. He thought it was because they were suburban, but I don't know. That's this heavy. Is also Chicago area. Right. So I'm sure it entirely depends on the like, sort of populations that work there. That's why right. I wanted to check with a neighboring hospital that is of a similar caliber. Yeah. I'm not on the list. I am kind of low tier. Even the postdoc that I work most directly with is not on the list. My PI is on the list with no promise of getting a shot soon. They'll let him know, but that's not me. I think people are like, drugs get recalled off the market all the time. We don't know long-term effects. But has there ever really been a vaccine scandal? Not to my knowledge. There's been drug scandals and like kind of remedial science and like pop science where like drugs have been presented to the public and then recalled. But, like, a dangerous vaccine recall has not happened no. in... There's never been a dangerous vaccine recall. There, I think there might have been some that were infected, like something that had gotten contaminated. Interesting. I'm sure that's happened. Right. The initial scandal about autism was just based on a lie, and they went ahead and recalled all the vaccines that had the chemical in it. I used to know the word. Right. That had the questionable element in it mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. was under fire. They went ahead and pulled that out of all the vaccines anyway, just while they were investigating it. And then it turned out not to be a problem. So there never had been a dangerous right. vaccine. So, I don't know. Individual cases, if we give yeah. a lot of vaccines, there's bound to be some screw ups. Of course. And people. But there's like, not been yeah. a scientific controversy. <laughs> there's been yeah. a human error type of thing. Science fiction is a really good genre that I like reading, 
But I think that that narrative just really does scare people who do not have the literacy to go into a scientific paper and understand what's going on. They're like, yeah, of course there's this plague and no vaccine. It's mind control. And it's like, well, you know, that's not it. But it has been written about and you're scared and there's political unrest. And so I don't know what to tell you because I can't talk to you about immunology, which even I don't understand the ins and outs of. And also, even if you did, we don't know the immune landscape for this. Literally. For any new diseases. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also, it's so infectious. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the case that an infection from last year would be the same as one from mm-hmm. this year or that you would be expected to know the differences because we just don't it's not like a flu which has a very well known right super well characterized genome yeah. yeah we know the genes that are present in the flu we can predict the mutations that mm-hmm. can happen genetic drift. with the flu because <laughs> I feel like you love to just throw in <laughs> genetic drift which means a very specific thing People claiming that COVID-19 was mutating, like, back in July, it's like the difference between mutation and genetic drift at that point was, like, it's it has not mutated yet. We can't talk about the rate of mutation in COVID because we don't know what it is. Yeah, okay. But we know there are new, more infectious variants mm-hmm. that have been generated, and we know that the direction of selection is more infectious. Infectious. Virulence. This virus really thrives in humans. Like, it just found its way from bats to humans and was like, this is my gig. And we were all like, oh, no. This is what happens when you get access to a new ecological niche. Yeah. You see growth at first. Mm -hmm. Because you have a new opportunity, you get to fill in all that space you have access to that you never had access to before. So there's a rich opportunity for you to grow. And during that time... The more you grow, just the more by chance mutations will occur, and one of them will be beneficial and make you even more good at growing in mm-hmm. humans or infecting humans. And we do know the genome of the COVID oh, virus. Oh, yeah. That took us like two months, right? That was like fast. Right. But we then have to identify out of all the genes that are present. First, we have to see if we can recognize the genes. Then we have to see which ones are actually involved in infection because a mm-hmm. lot of them are just going to be like – Here's what it means to be a virus. Yes. And we'll have nothing to do with actually infecting humans or bats or anything. And there's probably only a few that are really important for Mm -hmm. making us sick. And then within that, we have to look at like a couple thousand base pairs and try to identify which ones of those are the functional variants that are making the difference. So it's not as straightforward, but at least we have the information. And there's so many good people working on it. I mean, we were able to produce the vaccine so quickly. I think, unfortunately, the case that it's about to get a little bit worse before it gets better just Mm -hmm. because we now have new variants in the mix and the (sighs) vaccination rollout in the U.S. has not been super good. And let me just say quickly that I just am in this position where nothing is stopping and it's just kind of funny to talk about. Like when this all started almost about a year ago, like. People were kind of down to lock down for a little bit and be like, let's do this thing like together. We can do it. It ended up dragging out longer than people want. And then things. Okay, so the first was like civil unrest. We need to protest now. Okay, we're going to break social distancing to go protest. I guess that's just what needs to happen. Can't not protest. Got to do that. Okay. Well, we had some significant murders. I know. That's what I'm saying. The world circumstance did not allow for just chilling at home so much over summer. 
I was on right. a farm. I wasn't here. But I know that that's what was going on. <laughs> okay. I left and went, moved almost to Canada. Then I come home. Fall is happening. Nobody's in school still. Kind of chill. Cases go up. But then the holidays hit. And people are like, well, I can't just chill at home for the holidays. Now it's about to be spring break. I see people being like, what? So I'm not going to go on vacation? I'm like, I don't know. Can you just not go? I don't know. There's not been a point since, I guess, the very beginning where... Things have settled down. And then all this political, yes, people, it's mm-hmm. just a rambunctious time. And it's like, okay, it's a rambunctious <laughs> time, but there is a pandemic. So ideally we should be taking it easy, but the world is like, no, we're going to take it full speed ahead. And the holidays and spring break still matter. And I'm like, if you want it to be normal that badly, okay. <laughs> the United States has no chill. That's my rant. The United States as has a populace. no chill as a populace. Oh, Goodness me. Okay. I'm sorry, everybody. So this is hard. not a COVID podcast, but... This is a safe space for you, though. Aw. And you're right. I know. You're not wrong. Like, <laughs> these you. people have lost their minds. We can't go there. There's no point. This is the perfect time for everybody as an individual to learn how to chill. Because it's actually, like, you have all to. all you need to do. It's, like, mostly what you need to do. Wait, you're going into work, right? Yeah. You have to. Yes, me too. And so it's like... I gotta graduate. Yeah. On the one hand, I do feel a sense of privilege because I have an outlet Absolutely. for leaving the house because my job requires it. Other people are like, I'm working from home and I'm stir crazy as heck. But I still have that same feeling of coming home from a long day at work and just can't wait to unwind and not leave the house. But other people are like, I've been doing this for months and months. And I'm like, I know and I'm sorry. I think it's important that you acknowledge and are thankful for that i am i definitely am too the -hmm. other part of it is i'm only allowed to go to work when i need to use the equipment Mm -hmm. so i am working a lot from home and Mm -hmm. i did have to move to a place that had internet that would allow me to do some type of computing Mm -hmm. from home my job is still my job i still have to do it Mm -hmm. we had to significantly reshape (laughs) the way that the science is working in our lab mostly just moving things remotely which is not that weird if you're analyzing data it's a little bit harder if you're trying to generate data This brings up an interesting point that we were talking about in my lab yesterday, which is remote control over microscopes. Oh, yeah. Do you have any experience doing that? Have you ever controlled a microscope remotely from your house? Because they were talking about pre-COVID, you would have to do overnight imaging and Mm -hmm. you would like do it from your house with remote control over the microscope. And I was just like, it was blowing my mind. I was like, of course, this is a thing. I just don't consider it. Oh, absolutely. If you're doing any type of imaging, they usually Mm -hmm. have a microscopy core that will help you set up those programs. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times you have to just use a set amount of dye that will work Mm -hmm. the right way. And then Mm -hmm. or you have a fluorescence tag, a biological tag or something that doesn't even Mm -hmm. need to be amplified. And Mm -hmm. we certainly do overnight assays a lot Mm -hmm. in the lab, but I don't, I'm not a microscoper. Microscopist. There you go. I'm not, I'm not. I just, I'm just not. <laughs> so back off. No, but the Marine Biological Laboratory, which is a famous national lab in Cape Cod, has a whole microscopy core that you can go do courses that will teach you how to do all kinds of amazing imagery there. It's funding oh. available for students and stuff. You should look into it. In my search bar. They were the lab that did the first imaging of the tongue microbiome, where we were able to identify the structure of all the populations. It is nutty banana cakes. It will make you want to brush your teeth so hard. Oh, I will not look. Suddenly I can't see. We got to cover that in one of our episodes. Let's do it. It was a big discovery and a recent discovery and also just nice. Now we can look at something we couldn't look at before. 
because we have new tech. While we're on the topic of crazy birthing devices, everybody has to look up some physiotomy and look at the original chainsaw that is a terrifying monster of a machine. But then, <laughs> do you know what twilight sleep is? Rebecca, I don't, but it sounds like something I'd like to engage fully. Are you already a little bit afraid? <laughs> I'm afraid, but I love sleeping. <laughs> Well, it used to be, so way, way, way later in, let's see, 1906, this technology was developed and it's a way of giving birth. I think sometimes it's called twilight birth, but twilight sleep refers to the whole process where they give you like one drug that's big pain relief, like morphine, and then one Mm -hmm. drug that kind of dries out your mouth and discourages you from having seizures and injuring yourself it's like an Mm anti-nausea drug Mm -hmm. and they give you large doses of these two things and it would basically induce amnesia in women so that they would go and fall into this nice twilight sleep where they could still Uh be led to like go to the bathroom and do certain things and they would give birth this way oh it was probably the first option for painless childbirth because they would just Mm. like fully knock you out well not fully but like to yeah almost the effect of this was actually to reduce complications in birth, which mm-hmm. probably because the woman was not actively present. How does it sound to you? Um, it it kind of sounds like being roofied. The cultural narrative present in my mind is like, you should be afraid of roofies. And hearing this, I'm like, that sounds like something I'm afraid of already. Yeah, I could not have said it better myself. It does sound like that. And it it kind of is the same loss of control on the part of the women. And it's some dudes deciding we're going to take you out. Then we're going to do something to your body. And then it'll be all over. And you will have no memory of what happened, which is the weirdest part, like the induced amnesia. Yeah, that is odd. That's like a memory charm from Harry Potter, if anyone. Yeah. Wait, what is? Well, that's the first example I've heard of like a real memory wipe. Like a memory charm from Harry Potter where they're just like, yeah, okay, you don't remember what just happened. Have you ever seen Men in Black? Yeah. Oh, yeah, duh. They have a little wand memory Mm -hmm. eraser that they like wave in front of someone's face and they can be like, here's the story that you're going to remember or you're not going to remember anything at all. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, crazy. So, but I guess it worked for the most part in terms of the babies Mm -hmm. were okay. So then it turns out as this process gains in popularity and goes on mm-hmm. what's really happening is that the morphine is reducing the pain and the other drug scopolamine is what it's called was preventing vomiting but it wasn't actually since they weren't knocked out they weren't always pain relieved enough and so the women were actually having these really traumatic births where they were being strapped <sighs> down to the beds to mm-hmm. prevent them from convulsing and fighting mm-hmm. but they just wouldn't remember So it creates this nightmare scenario where you are in horrible, horrible, agonizing pain and they're cutting into your body and they're sort of reducing some of your function and they're definitely reducing your brain Uh activity during this time. But you would wake up with horrible bruising and staples and yeah. yeah. But you would have no memory of it. And so what they could tell you whatever happened, oh, this is normal. Uh Yeah. And they probably told them it went great every time. 
Yeah, well, there was this woman um, who wrote a book in 1912 about how her twilight sleep was a fairy tale and she ended up enjoying the clinic so much that she just went on and stayed for a month and it became like <laughs> i think it's probably one of those things where she's like oh i, I just you know i lost weight i my yeah. hair was shiny because i didn't wash it for two months and i was basically in a hotel room and there was also valley of the dolls is this old book like old from 1960s america okay uh, this fabulous set of books they made movies about it it's basically loosely based on Patty Duke's life. So it's all about the dolls or pills and the pills that people used to take. And in that book, they describe a European spa treatment where basically you go to, I think it was like a Swiss, Swiss or, or Swedish or something, where you go to this clinic and they put you in twilight sleep. And all you do for like two weeks is they would lead you to the bathroom and you would come back mm. and then they like IV you to keep you hydrated. So you would mm-hmm. lose a lot of weight and your hair would get really shiny because you're just laying there. Yeah. They called it a beauty treatment. And wow. so this practice became. I this was, it was like in the used. 60s. Yes. Wow. McClure's magazine ran articles about how like fun it was. It was a thing that women could go do in women's clinics would be to go have twilight wow. sleep as a health treatment. Wow. Then a couple of women started doing some research to actually mm-hmm. document what was going on. Their last names are Tracy and Loop, L-E-U-P-P. And this is around like 1912, 1913. They start interviewing mm-hmm. women and asking about their birth experiences at one of their local clinics. Mm-hmm. And local women gave positive feedback, saying that it was very quiet. They had considerate staff and that they were refreshed. They woke up refreshed from childbirth like they have just been <sighs> sleeping and sleeping and sleeping. What? So it was published as a medical advancement. Okay. And they were like, using scopolamine is kind of creepy, but it's okay. (laughs) What is scopolamine? Is that a chemical? Scopolamine is the other drug. So they gave morphine for pain and scopolamine is an anti-nausea pill. It was controversial to use it at all. But the other controversy, like the real controversial thing that they uncovered was the drug. Yeah. It's a big molecule. Yeah, there's like a benzene ring on there, a dibicyclic ring. Um, we can talk about functional groups, but I don't want to alienate our audience. So it seems like a, would you say like a heavy duty? Yeah, it's got a bunch of reactive side chains on it and you should look it up. I almost, when I looked it up, just really quick here, Rebecca, let me see if this is true. It's on PubChem. There's lots about it. I'm just trying to see if like I could order it. <laughs> Oh. Like, can you order it still? Science Direct? No. There's no Sigma or anything coming up, so I don't think it's being manufactured. Can I buy scopolamine? I don't think so. I think the answer is no. Seems like pretty ancient stuff. I don't know if you want a drug that was really popular in 1915, but maybe. Health Warehouse. No. (laughs) (laughs) A patch. You want a 1.5 milligram scopolamine transdermal patch i don't you know well it is an anti-nausea so maybe it still has a use for i know nothing about this drug i just know that that's the effect so weird stuff is coming up rebecca i think people are like this is a homeopathic thing you can use as a patch and it's kind of that doesn't surprise me at all okay fair you know any random drug is any random drug can be Co-opted. assigned magical properties yeah, yeah. to people who don't use evidence to get yeah. there. But apparently, as the popularity of this process went on and on, 
it got so popular that they were allowing untrained nurses to administer the two drugs. And it's it's pretty hard to do it accurately to do, to like produce the twilight sleep effect. You have to give mm-hmm. a specific amount that's not going to kill people and also is actually going to knock them out enough. Mm-hmm. And so they started to have higher rates of failure and just like complications to it. And then there were some deaths during childbirth, wow. during twilight sleep. So it became unpopular. It looked like a couple of old-timey celebrities, like a Brooklyn lawyer, someone named Francis Carmody died. So I think with the death of people, it, it went out of popularity. I think it's still used to prevent nausea and vomiting caused by motion sickness, oh, anesthesia, and surgery. I mean, this is CVS dot com and like the, i don't really think there's a yeah, way to order it why are you so fixated on it <laughs> because it was used so so much so they much. still use morphine yeah they do i mean that's yeah i'm fixated on it because of the phrase twilight sleep it is terrifying i mean it sounds like a nightmare yeah. that you might go mm-hmm. to a hospital and be put into a state where you're guaranteed not to remember what happens to you that's just a vulnerability uh-huh. that can't be underestimated. Right. I do absolutely understand the appeal of a painless birth. Are you kidding? That's so scary. Like the pain to me, I don't have a high pain threshold. It's scary to me. So apparently... It's scary to me too. So this was popular through the 1970s, which explains why it's in the Valley of the Dolls story. It's still happening uh-huh. and still going on when there's people that are using it as beauty treatments and people that want to have a nice, easy birth, which is also pretty American. To opt into this painless birth thing where you don't have to go through something that might be terrible or might be horrific for you. Me. And then it turns out that they were just being strapped to beds and basically having seizures throughout the process. Um, And some women started to report that they remember the trauma that they had been through Mm -hmm. because the drugs weren't being administered properly, so they weren't actually being knocked mm-hmm. out enough. Like I mentioned, that was also a problem. And then there was yeah. this 1958 article published in Ladies Home Journal that blew the lid off of what was really happening. And it was spurred by an anonymous letter from a registered nurse and a bunch of other women who had submitted ah. their own stories talking about all of the the badness. Right. So mostly I feel like what was being written about was, hey, I actually remember yeah. And that is because, like, anesthesiology was not really right. pinned down. Some women probably got enough to not remember and just kind of live life. The training didn't keep up with the popularity. So the demand kind of skyrocketed. Uh-huh. And then they were mm-hmm. not really, like you said, it's a brand new science anyway. So yeah, this is something that we do every day in the hospital. But really, it's so new that we don't have a training. It's, then you get mm-hmm. these horrible. And a lot of people, I guess, experience this beautiful, relaxing sleep. I just peacefully laid there and I gave Mm -hmm. birth and my baby came into the world in a peaceful way. Mm -hmm. And then I look, you know, I wake up refreshed and beautiful and ready to take Mm -hmm. on the world. And that Mm -hmm. is one thing. And then another thing to wake up mid-procedure and realize that you're strapped to the bed (gasps) and that you're in extreme pain, that no one is listening to you and that you probably can't communicate fully. (laughs) And then who knows? I don't know if they give you just more scopolamine, but then... So you wake up at the end and everything is fine. And then you have these waves of horrible, yeah. horrible memories and traumatic incidents. And it's like the opposite. It's the number one thing you wouldn't want your baby to be born into. 
the other part of this is they certainly weren't disclosing to the women really what was yeah. going on or what was happening. It's it's fully based on lies. The whole treatment is like, yeah. it's really important that you think you had a relaxing time when in reality you had this really traumatic thing that we would normally never put, we'd now never put a body through. These are hardcore narcotics and yeah. we know that you don't lightly give those, especially to pregnant women. Right. <laughs> it's kind of wild to just even think about those these hardcore drugs being administered to anybody, especially really widely, especially in situations where the staff isn't being well trained. So yeah, it's just gosh. and then for such a major thing like childbirth, where now it's like, like the most stressful thing your body will do. Yeah. And probably something that it would really help if you're actually there participating and like yeah. engaging. And if something goes wrong with your body, you're not able to communicate it. So it really At takes all. the Safety human measures. rights out of it. Yeah. yeah, the safety measures it takes, absolutely. Like, it takes all of the sort of things we know now that you can't get rid of to have a successful mm-hmm. surgery. So twilight sleep is a crazy thing that used to happen. That is so crazy. It's yeah. interesting because we talked during the chainsaw segment about stress levels. And, well, this was more Ugh. about the disproportional treatment of women in hospitals during but it's birth kind of and the pregnancy. Same. Like, yeah, it's like, we're going to still about... use this horrific shit on you, but we don't want you to know. And, like, your stress levels will, ideally, if we're using this correctly, your your stress levels will be low. So the idea is, like, you'll be in a healthier state to do it. But now, with drug science, we know narcotics are harmful and the pros do not outweigh the cons. The stress and the hormone, I mean, who knows? Drugs are definitely hormone disruptors. But the idea of reducing stress was there, but we know that it's such an aggressive way to do it that it's totally not the right approach and communication is better <laughs> yeah that's a really good point they like you, there's a, n- a nugget of good practice <laughs> there's mm-hmm. like we know that th- we need to reduce the stress there's some evidence mm-hmm. that suggests this would be good but then we're using this really blunt force way to tr- knock your ass out and yeah. also don't remember so totally fun. blunt force that's that's a great way to describe it So my best friend, she had a C-section that was scheduled and mm-hmm. apparently went off like without a hitch. There were no complications. It was best case scenario. And mm-hmm. the baby's about eight pounds. So oh. she she was pregnant for like a full almost 10 months. Wow. They had scheduled this ahead of time. And I'm just really thankful mm-hmm. that it worked out perfectly. And this was in mm-hmm. the Houston Medical Center, which is a great medical center in my hometown. Her husband was allowed to be there. The baby's like perfect. And I'm really excited. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, they said with mm-hmm. a C-section normally, they stay about three days. But with COVID, they're sending them because there's, everything looks good. They're cramming in all their training. So they keep having nurses come in and talk about lactation and different yeah. things. And they're going to try and send him home tonight. So hey, yeah. he, he was born last night. Aww. Do you know how people slash, okay, women can be in labor for so long or they can be in labor for not so long. I was like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's confusing because some people will be in labor for literally days, but some people I... will be like, yeah. So I think with the scheduled with, C-section like... is different, but okay, okay, okay. But with mm-hmm. a natural birth, a hundred percent, I think that's a big part of it. Is this unknown thing, and it, especially with a first birth, it tends to be when you have the really long, laborious labors. Laborious labors. How could um, I do it? 
Well, you could do what my friend did and schedule a surgery, which is 100% different. Like you go in an ideal situation. She had a whole day to just do self-care beforehand and get into the right mode. Oh, my gosh. She and her partner got to go. Uh, I don't know, man. I I know. She does it. (laughs) (laughs) But lots of women do it. Go on. Yeah. So, I mean, you could do it this way where it's as low stress as you can make it, but it's also not a very natural way to go. She had Mm -hmm. an epidural. Mm -hmm. Um, I did check because I was just curious, but it also like went off without a hitch, no complications. She said Mm -hmm. she has a ton of staples in her stomach. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. surgery. Yeah. The other thing is her vaginal situation hasn't changed at all. So she True. didn't. She won't have any tearing or other uh-huh. complications that can happen with vaginal births. So yeah, maybe in a COVID time, it makes a lot of sense to do it that way because it's in and out, and you're really reducing the amount of time you're spending in a hospital, which is just mm-hmm. a high risk place to be. It's also we don't care what women do. We want women to do whatever they want to do. But we're just talking yeah. through these things because they're new to us, and also the science aspects are so crazy. Yeah. Twilight sleep is uh, like, and this chainsaw thing, like. like <laughs> My mind is totally blown. And just it was the first chainsaw, and it was for the, cutting bones. And it is, like, it's just the fact that it looks like a knife, the fact that it also looks like a hand mixer. With, yeah. It's terrifying to think of somebody coming at your insides using this slow, painful, serrated blade. Mm-hmm. It's truly Ugh. nightmare scenario. Ish. I think, actually, if I had the choice, if they were going to use that, if I had to get a symphysiotomy, I would want to be in twilight sleep. I don't think I would want to remember. <laughs> I, don't, I you think know? I can say the same, yeah. <laughs> twilight sleep case, and symphysiotomy go hand in hand. Knock me out. I can't deal no, with no that. Way. I think I could deal with like natural childbirth way easier than somebody coming yeah. at me with that freaking knife chainsaw thing. People took notice of that freaking knife chainsaw thing though and said, hey, if it's cutting through bones, I bet it can cut through wood. And I mean, the chainsaw was Let's- born. Let's scale this up. <laughs> yeah, scale this up make, for industry. Let's make it a sword. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think that's good. Yeah, great show. You're something special. Once you do know you are. You'll make those mother kissing cards picked up. You're something special.